Well, I had a problem. Okay, I know what some of you might be saying. Had a problem. Because doubtless there are many problems that I have. But I think about this problem often. Because in many ways, understanding this problem has been one of the defining moments in my life. I've taught teenagers and young adults for the better part of 20 years. And ever since I was a teenager, this has been something that I felt called to do. I love history. I love literature. I love languages. And don't be scared, even some math. And I thought that there really couldn't be a whole lot better in this life than getting to talk about and teach the things that I love. But there was a problem. And I'm not terrible at it. I'm not bad. I can tell a good story. I don't mind being up in front of people and talking. Um, But early on in my teaching career, I didn't really enjoy kids. I didn't really like them. I mean, I thought I did. But I found myself getting frustrated with them. I'm not trying to justify myself, but how much time have you spent around teenagers? Really? I know many of you have kids of your own, and with just a couple of teenagers in the house, things can get a little dicey. Now just imagine it's not two, but it's a hundred of them. They don't listen. They're off in la-la land somewhere. Constant arguing, drama. I mean, it was and still can be sometimes a lot. And I thought I knew the situation. I thought I understood what the problem was. It's them, obviously. All of their teenageriness was getting in the way of what I wanted to do, of what I loved doing. And I became angry and frustrated. And then one day, in the midst of a gripe session with another teacher as we were talking about our various classes and the problems we have and the issues we had for students, they made a comment in passing. They said, you know, Kevin, we're the middle schoolers in God's classroom. Oh, talk about a punch in the gut. It was like I saw everything clearly for the first time. Now, what do we do with these moments when, by God's grace, he gives us clear vision? When suddenly his mercy removes our blindness and our defenses? See, these oof moments are the central feature of juridical parables. Stories where the unsuspecting listener can see in the wrong deeds of the characters their own sin and pass judgment on themselves before they really know who the subject of the parable really is. The most famous of these is, of course, Nathan's parable to David in the aftermath of the Bathsheba debacle. Our passage from Isaiah is another one of these. And it would have been so familiar to Jesus' audience in the temple courts that day. 
Jesus is intentionally using the language and setting of Isaiah's parable so that he can take them deeper, telling them the story of a vineyard that they thought that they knew. He's going to take them down now into the depths of their own hearts, into their ignorance, and through their inattention and denial to see and know themselves devoid of all masks and pretenses, to the place where recognition can open up the doors to humility, knowledge, contrition, and forgiveness. The religious rulers and people have crowded around Jesus in the temple, listening to his words. They have questions about his authority, who he is. But the issue is, is that they're not going to really be able to see and understand Jesus until they're really willing to see themselves. So he turns to a different parable. Try this one on for size. There was a landowner who had a beloved vineyard, and he cared for it. As soon as the audience hears this, they know where he's going. The echoes of Isaiah and Psalm 80 are moving under the surface of Jesus' words. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it on a very fertile hill. You dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. You built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out branches to the sea, its roots to the river. Can you see the crowd and the leaders nodding their heads? That's right. The land of Israel, the Jews, his people are the vineyard. I mean, in case we were any doubt, Isaiah lays it out pretty clear. Right? The vineyard of the Lord is the house of Israel. The house of Judah is his pleasant planting. And the image goes all the way back to the beginning of Israel's history. Moses in Deuteronomy says the Lord's own portion was his people, Jacob his allotted share, he sustained them in a desert land, in a howling wilderness waste. He shielded him, cared for him, guarded him as the apple of his eye, set him atop the heights of the land and fed him with the produce of the field, nursed him with honey from the crag, with oil from the flinty rocks, curds from the herd, milk from the flock, and with the fat of lambs and rams. And the people knew all of this. The words of Moses were true words. And they and their ancestors had messed it all up. You grew fat and bloated and gorded. You made the Lord jealous with strange gods, with abhorrent things you provoked him. You sacrificed to demons, not God, to deities that you never knew. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you. You forgot the God that gave you birth. And Isaiah continues, if this is the case, now inhabitants of Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I had not done? When I expected it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will break its hedge I will break down its wall so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit and it shall be devoured. 
God had taken away the land from them and turned them over to be ruled and oppressed by pagans, outsiders. But there's hope. The psalmist says, turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine. The leaders and the people knew all of this. This was their story. And as Jesus continues, it is hard for us maybe to hear with the ears that they heard back then. But think, the chief priests and the elders would have never assumed for one minute that the wicked tenants were them. How can they be? They're the vineyard. These tenants, those must be the nations that are oppressing them. Those must be the Romans, those vile, hated pagans. So what will the master of the vineyard do to those who have taken his vineyard, oppressed, mistreated, and killed his messengers? Matthew says that they said, but I bet they shouted it. I bet their faces shone with the wished for, the anticipated, the longed for day of God's judgment. He will put those wretches to a miserable death. And Jesus has them. Your mouth to God's ears. Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing. And it was amazing in our eyes. Jesus quotes from Psalm 118, the great Hallel that was recited in its full every great Jewish feast day and was fact the psalm the crowds had greeted Jesus with just the day before on his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And the quote here is the key to the whole parable. And it's a clever wordplay on the word for sun and stone, builders and wise and learned. And it's obvious that the temple elite knew that the parable was now surprisingly and terribly directed at them. The response of Jesus is the same as, the, as that of the prophet Nathan. You are the tenants. Oh, the pain. The son from the parable that you, the wise and learned, are rejecting is the cornerstone and this son's stone is the one that David foretold and spoke about. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. And just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain, not by hands, and that it crushed the iron and the bronze and the clay and the silver and the gold. So who is it that does these things? Jesus has left them now in far less doubt about who he says he is. And claims to be, but more than that, he's given them a clear picture of who they are. They are the ones who have oppressed and resisted the purposes of God. They are the ones who have abused and killed his messengers. And who are on the brink of doing the same thing to his son. Here is who you are. What will you do with it? See, here's the thing about these juridical parables they break down all walls that we have constructed. The Lord built walls around his vineyard to protect it, and we do the same thing with ourselves around our fragile egos, our pride, our desires, our hopes, our fears, our sin, around ourselves. And these parables like the sunstone come crashing through those walls like they were made out of grass and straw. 
They are illusions that we use to keep ourselves from God and from others. And God, in his mercy, will tear down the walls that you have built. And the thing is, they're not keeping him out. He was always there with you all along, even as we try to hide ourselves away inside these walls. And when we find ourselves there defenseless and exposed, what do we do? I sat there hearing that, and I had to admit a few things to myself. I thought I was better than my students. I thought it was all about me, about the things that I can do, that I'm a good teacher, that I'm smart, that I like being up front and sounding good and being in charge, not that different from chief priests and elders. I didn't really love my students. They were useful. They were tools. They were an audience. They were a necessary component of my illusion, but they weren't the focus. I was. I had made an idol of myself, and God and his image and the face of each of my students wasn't my deepest love, and their good wasn't my deepest desire. And my actions and my frustrations and my angers proved this each day. So my words like David's had to be, I have sinned. And I had to repent. And I had to beg God for the gift to love not myself, but those that he had given me. To take away all that kept me from this love and to replace it with his love. And the wonderful thing is he did it. I don't teach anymore because I love history or Latin or even math. I still like those things. They're fine. They're good and interesting. I like teaching I love teaching because I love students and I love people. Getting to be with them, helping them to see a little of the wonder and beauty and goodness and love of God, that's where real joy lies. It lies in communion with God and with those who he loves. And in giving all those illusions, all those idols to God, I got back the thing I loved so much better than the terrible thing that I had imagined for myself. And it doesn't make my students any less occasionally obnoxious or annoying or frustrating. But I'm each of those things. And God still longs for my communion and my fellowship and for me to be with him. And he longs for each of my students in the exact same way. He longs for each of us in the exact same way. How can we not love each other in the exact same way? Oh, those poor chief priests and elders. They saw themselves exposed by Jesus' parable, and they hated him for it. Here they were, their idols and wrong loves exposed, and they had the chance to repent to turn and truly obey the commandments, to love God and to love their neighbors, tax collectors and prostitutes who saw themselves truly and saw what Jesus was offering, they were repenting and entering the kingdom of God. But not the tax collector, not the elders and the chief priests. They, like their ancestors, loved their idols too much. Only this time they weren't Baals or Moloch's or Asherah's. They were their power, their position, their wealth. 
O God, you who made each of us break the walls and idols that we build and that separate us from you, from doing your will and from loving your people, turn our hearts and love to you, you who love each of us and long for nothing more than that we might be united with you and all you love and the eternal communion and fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.